0: This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.
1: Welcome to this call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. We are discussing the upcoming NATO summit in Vilnius. I'm joined by defense analyst Katrina Yuknevichuta, who is in Vilnius already. Uh, Barry Pavel, our vice president of of the National Security Research Division, who will be headed to Vilnius shortly. Uh, Steve Flanagan, an adjunct senior fellow, and two of our senior political scientists, uh, Sam Sherup and Mike Mazar, although Mike is going to be just a few minutes late. Uh, We also have Carl Miller on the line, uh, who may be able to uh, help out as well. I will lead a quick discussion to get us started and then open the floor to questions. That said, uh, this will not be terribly formal. So if anyone wants to weigh in uh, while I'm posing a few questions, uh, please do so. Either just by raising your hand or jumping in or or, uh, saying something on the chat. Uh, Let's uh, start with Turkey. Turkey and Hungary are the potential spoilers at this summit. They're still holding out on Sweden joining the alliance. I'm wondering if we think there will be a breakthrough at the summit. Uh, Katrina, maybe you could start and then we'll ask others to weigh in.
2: Sure, I can start very briefly. Um, well, I think there are two different sides of this view. You can take the optimistic or the pessimistic approach. I think we're generally where my head's at is... I was very optimistic a couple weeks ago, but I think as things progress, uh, I'm starting to have some doubts about, you know, whether July 11th is really going to be going to be that day when we have Swedish accession and Turkey is really going to uh, kind of come to the table and uh, give us the, the answer that we're all hoping for. Uh, I think there's with Turkey the main issue is not so much Sweden as it is the US. I think there's a lot of questions around the sale of the F 16s and uh, just a lot of internal dynamics between Turkey and the US that uh, are seemingly still in the works. And so I think that's one of the reasons Erdogan is holding out. So it's unclear really if we're going to have. The result that we're all hoping for during the NATO summit, but I do think that it's a uh, it poses quite a great opportunity for uh, for Erdogan to start making some type of uh, larger statement and to really have more of a. a more of a role to play on the larger global stage. If he were to make any type of decisions around the NATO summit, I think it would be a great opportunity for him and a great point of leverage as well, uh, timing wise, but I'm not too optimistic about this really being, being the time, but I would open, uh, would open to hearing other thoughts as well.
1: Barry, what do you think about Is this a good moment of leverage potentially for Erdogan?
3: Yeah, I'm not a Turkey expert, uh, and um, it's treacherous territory. Um, but I, my assumption has been that the moment of maximum leverage is, you know, Monday night at midnight, you know, the night bef- on, the, on the eve of the historic NATO summit. I mean, I think afterwards, you know, the um, the desire to come to a deal, you know, and and, and you know, neg- negative negative. Uh, feelings toward an allied Turkey, you know, and uh, frustration starts to mount, um, I, I think he will sort of exact his maximum price, you know, in the run up to the summit. I, w- I would assume that, but uh, he, he may have different uh, different calculus in mind. I don't think it, my own view, but could be wrong. I don't think it has to do with the specifics of what action Sweden's taking um regarding the issues that uh turkey has um pointed out as concerns they've already taken some action uh you know i think i think it's a question of you know how high a price whether it's f-16s or other things uh that he will exact but i caution on
1: that speculation anyone else want to weigh in on uh, this potential deal making
4: yeah, I'm. I'm happy to. Uh, this is Steve. The uh, Erdogan has maximum flexibility in this, uh, having won the election handily. Uh, he now is in a position to uh, decide what is enough. Um, President Biden has, uh, in his meeting with uh, Prime Minister Kristerson, uh, has you know underscored the continuing support for Sweden's accession. Um, the uh, there are positive signs that the uh, that the Turks had sent a high level delegation in including Foreign Minister Fidan uh, and other of Erdogan's closest advisors to, uh, to NATO today, where they're meeting with uh, Swedish and Finnish and other authorities to try to work out something. Um, I do think Erdogan will need some kind of uh, clear gesture from the Swedes. It, yes, it's posturing at some level. It's, it is more directed uh, about what kind of commitments the United States will make to Turkey's security in the long term. But... But I do think he needs some. He will need some something at home to say that he achieves certain assurances. And unfortunately, recent developments in Sweden, including a, a Koran burning and uh, and an affirmation of the Swedish courts that, that that they would not stand in the way of that kind of protest, uh, have not been helpful. But uh, but it may be that the Swedes can come up with. They just arrested uh, uh, someone who was seen as a supporter of the PKK. It's possible that the Swedes can come up with some kind of gestures that will. And give erdogan some of that face saving that he needs but biden has said that uh until the um uh, the turks uh, agree on swedish accession, that he will not move on the f-16 deal and that is still subject to uh concurrence by the congress which has been very hard over on other issues as well you know words, what's happening in turkey domestically uh and Turkey's continuing um, flirtations with the russians
1: yeah, I wouldn't mind if you could, if you or, or any of you could unpack a little bit the, the U.S. side of this equation. I mean, what what uh, exactly are the U.S. bargaining chips and uh, how does congressional support or lack thereof affect what uh, the Biden administration could do?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, Turkey, when it um uh, uh, purchased the S-400 several years ago was was uh, deleted as a as a full partner in the F-35 program uh, that created a real problem for Turkey because it's uh, it's uh, Air Force uh, F-16 and largely uh, F-16 dominated Air Force is aging out it needs a modernization plan um, it, it is developing its own uh, fourth generation fifth generation aircraft but that will be some time off um, so it has been seeking um, a, a deal with the United States over the last year and a half uh, to acquire um, upgrades for a certain uh, about 100 or so of their existing F-16s and purchase of an additional uh, 100 or so uh, to provide a bridge to their, uh, for, you know, uh, until they can develop their own fifth-generation aircraft or perhaps uh, somehow, although very unlikely to get back in the F-35 program. Um, in addition, um, I mean, the, the, the state of generally, of military-to-military relations with Turkey uh, and between the United States and, and several other allies is, is not actually that bad. Uh, but Turkey has been uh, very reluctant to take a more assertive posture uh, against Russia in the Black Sea, which has been another uh, area of irritation uh, in, the, in the relationship. So they've been standing um, Well, they did close the straits after the war began, um uh, Turkey has been uh, reticent uh, about uh, too much of an increase in NATO's posture in in the, in the Black Sea region.
1: How do you all view these questions uh, as affecting the overall outcomes of the summit? I mean uh, is it should we be so focused on how Turkey and Hungary are playing their cards and whether Sweden is formally uh, brought in here or are there? Uh, more important factors at stake. I haven't heard from Sam or Mike yet. In case either, either of you would love to weigh in, Sam, you want
5: to go ahead. You, you go ahead, Mike. Um, so I was just going to say, I think you know, you mentioned some of the the broad issues at stake. Um, the uh, Sweden issue is a is a significant one, um, but in my view, um, it's. Uh, the alliance is moving that direction. Uh, the relationship is going to deepen. Um, it is in all likelihood going to happen at some point. So, so to me, um, the continuation of discussions about general alliance integration in terms of planning, um, the spending commitments, um, those kind of things uh, is one centerpiece. Um, and the discussions of future security assurances to Ukraine is another uh, leading piece. But I really I mean, just to me that essential uh, uh, progress of uh, in- intensified defense collaboration, um, the new plans that have been reported, um, the way in which um, uh, kind of combined planning and uh, preparation for operations is advancing, the commitments of different countries in terms of, you um, General spending, specific uh, monetization, uh, all that stuff is re- the real centerpiece of the alliance. And and to the extent that that is progressing at a pace that is um, helpful, recognizing the constraints of the real world, um, I think that's that is the overwhelming story of the alliance right now. And if that's you know the headline piece that comes out of this of limited progress on Sweden, you know. Um, Limited progress on Ukraine uh, commitments, but um, very significant alignment on these on these issues of, of alliance defense planning. Then to me, that's the kind of the, the, the top line and most important theme and issue.
4: Sam, what do you think?
0: I guess the the, the there will be political consequences if we get into another um, macedonia type situation where uh you know one ally is um holding up the membership of a otherwise uh qualified country um and it took you know the better part of 20 years to uh to fix the name problem um and there wasn't much you know the the alliance kind of became used to having that unresolved um and i think the stakes are obviously much higher now both politically and you know militarily given that uh sweden is more exposed um than uh north macedonia is so um i think it's not completely inconsequential but i agree that the uh, there are other things going on as well
2: yeah i think also just kind of in line with that When we're talking about like Swedish accession into NATO, we're also talking about just all Nordic countries essentially being in NATO. And so then we're considering what does it mean to have Poland, Norway, or not Poland, sorry, Finland, Norway, and Sweden all in NATO? What does that mean for the alliance? What does that mean for uh, integration into the alliance? And how do we make sure that we support Finland and Sweden as they as they work through some of those challenges, there are naturally going to be some growing pains of uh, integrating uh, into, the, into the alliance. Um, there are obviously a lot of benefits that come with that too, uh, but I think there's, we need to think through, think through the entire, entire picture of what that means.
3: I would just add uh, to the good points that Mike and Katrina just raised. You know, Rand was in Sweden, uh, sent a large group um, a couple of weeks ago and had a lot of meetings with senior officials. And the one thing that was really one of the things that we really took away from those meetings, you know, Sweden's had been, been on its own for hundreds of years. And so to the, you know Mike's point about the integration, the advancement of planning for Finland, who's also been uh, on its own uh, for a very long time. And and for Sweden, even as it's not yet a formal member, I mean, those are that just takes a long it's a very long, detailed, important set of processes and culture. When when, you know, you have large or, you know, at, you have bureaucratic ministries who are used to doing something for a very long time. All of a sudden, the entire defense concept changes from homeland defense to being part of an alliance. You can imagine that's a pretty big lift. It takes a lot of effort by the senior political officials. Um, It will take some time for it to move forward, um, you know, in in all the different ways that one would need to integrate into NATO processes and with the new planning approach and plans that Mike mentioned. You know, I do think those are the headlines, sort of NATO defense and deterrence concepts with a real focus on the missile threat uh, to the Baltics, the air threat in northern Europe. Uh, that's, you know, with with the Russian ground forces, you know, decimated and engaged, that's really the focus of NATO. NATO's current efforts. In some ways, a little bit of a flip from previous summits, which were focused on capabilities pretty much as the real headline, 2% of your uh, GDP on defense. And I'm not saying that's going away, but I think uh, Mike and Katrina's point is a good one. There's this near-term threat of Russia, which is in an active invasion of a sovereign country. Uh, I think that is the new emphasis. That's what you'll hear as the headlines. I do think, though, we shouldn't underestimate the question of Ukrainian um, ar- security arrangements with the alliance. I'll put it neutrally. Uh, that will be history. Will look at that decision. What the alliance is going to do or not going to do. That will be a focus. There is no doubt. And so uh, will that uh, ultimate outcome lead to a more credible NATO uh, approach, a more credible um, uh, s- set of arrangements for security with Ukraine, or will, um, you know, important observers, including Russia, China and others, look at that as, oh, okay, they, didn- they really took a pass on that. Uh, now we can um, continue to act aggressively. I think that's, you know, let- let's not be, that's going to be a major uh, continuing, you um, a subject of contention, and, and we should not underestimate the importance of that.
1: Do you think that yeah. uh, there will be signals provided at NATO, and do you think Zelensky will be there to uh, receive those signals? Whoever, whoever wants uh,
3: Well, my, my guess is my guess is Zelensky's going to do what Erdogan's doing, which is, you know, I think he he's not planning to show until he, un, unless he gets something very significant and new. Uh, my sense is the alliance is not going to you know, go, You know, meet uh, the ultimate uh, Ukrainian expectation, but there will be some diplomatic um, outcome uh, that, uh, you know, the alliance overall can agree on. You know, whether it goes far enough is a question that we'll have to take a look at.
2: Yeah, I think Zelensky has pretty publicly said too that unless there's a path for NATO accession for Ukraine, a uh, conversations around that, he's not planning to show up, but we'll see what actually happens.
1: Anyone else on this point?
4: Well, I think the alliance is going to try to bridge uh, the differences. Uh, The uh, the Germans have said uh, accession for Ukraine is is sometime after the war is over. Uh, The French have been kind of straddling, interestingly, a middle position. The the Biden administration seems to be uh, not keen on on taking this on right now because the fundamental problem is is that if 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 there were a declaration that you know Ukraine would be a member of NATO in a certain period of time while well, the war is still on would mean that NATO would be immediately enjoined in the war so that's the that's the fundamental problem what mm-hmm. I think can be realized is a commitment to uh, strong security assistance guarantees or whatever they're, they're looking for a word that would circumvent that word guarantee. But uh, the things that were identified uh, is assurance assurances
1: the-
4: in the Kyiv security compact uh, that uh, former Secretary General Rasmussen and, and Ukrainian advisor Yermak had uh, identified uh, that coupled with some kind of a further statement that Ukraine, uh, you know, beyond the Budapest, declar- uh, the Bucharest declaration, um, of 2008, that that Ukraine um, is on a path towards uh, membership in NATO at some point, and that it doesn't have to be full regaining of control of all its territory. You know, people have been talking about the German model or the model of even Korea, where you had an armistice and security guarantees provided uh, even uh, for part of the uh, the country's territory. So, I think there are a number of solutions that could be provided that would, uh, or at least statements that would give uh, Ukraine some. Further hope and assurance.
0: Yeah, I uh, I would expect something concretely in this case that there probably be, you know, the membership action plan requirement will be scrapped in a way, and thus Ukraine will be in a position that Finland was in where it didn't have to go through MAP to become a member. That is largely symbolism because these are ultimately political decisions about membership in any case. And there's enough. you know, of divergence of views among allies about uh, how to proceed with that. That I think a procedural uh, concession might be where they end up, um, and uh, with you know perhaps some more firm language.
2: Yeah, and the membership action plan is really extensive, so it'd be hard to expect Ukraine coming out of a war to really be able to 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 meet all those requirements right away. So I think that's definitely you know, core to the conversation and similar to how Finland has been, uh, how Finland has its process. I think another concern, too, is just frozen conflict in Ukraine, which is kind of what we're seeing and outlining a clear path to membership right now, especially during the summit, definitely adds some of those concerns, I think, especially to the U.S. of just being able to, from the Russian side, to just prolong the conflict and create a frozen conflict and just really blocking the ability of Ukraine to ever go through that, um, go through that path towards NATO membership. So I think it's a very, it's a very delicate balance that we have to strike between security assurances and how do we work towards NATO membership without signaling to Russia that a frozen conflict is, is its best choice and that needs to prolong the war if it wants to Ensure that Ukraine isn't isn't part of NATO in the near future.
1: Sam, I was going to follow up with you as to whether this is even a, a helpful moment to be talking about NATO access, potential NATO accession for Ukraine. This summit is this is this the time and place
0: for for it? It depends on what your priority is, and I think allies have different views on that question. Um, so uh, it, it certainly. Uh, notable and this is true about summits generally speaking that the this issue is coming to a head because of the date of a meeting right not because of the course of the war or um you know the a decision that now is uh, the right time to be having this discussion um that just is the way that uh you know it's a it's a forcing event as they say um uh and um that's uh that's why we're we're at this point i think there are some allies who would um, have been glad to completely put off this conversation for a different time, given the degree of uncertainty. But there are others that will want to see much more than is likely to emerge from the uh, uh, the summit. So, um, you know, that's the, uh, the art of uh, coming to consensus among over now 30 countries. There's going to be some in between found um, and that. You know, unity in itself, I think, is going to be seen uh, from at least the Biden administration perspective as an important outcome.
5: Just quickly on well, that, I think one of the and I think Barry was sort of implying this another obviously category of things that the United States can do and the alliance can do is in security cooperation, short of uh, security guarantees. Now, some people will see right. those as insufficient without the guarantees, um, but it certainly is possible for, um, you know, for the the United States and the Alliance to um, announce a number of uh, commitments in terms of training, exercising. Um, obviously, we're, we're supplying equipment as possible, but to institutionalize aspects of the security cooperation relationship that uh, indicate a form of a commitment Um that will be short of uh, what some people want in terms of uh, an actual uh, Article 5 like commitment, but at least is uh, another indication that, you know, along with some symbolic things, can um, have people leaving the summit thinking that, you know, the alliance took more steps forward in putting things on the table to assure Ukraine's security under any condition in the future. So one of the things I'm really interested to see is, Do we see things like that? And what exactly are there? You know, what are what are the announcements and 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 how much do they sort of lock the the alliance into a security cooperation relationship going forward?
0: Or allies. You know, I don't know if it'll be it's unclear yet whether it'll be a a NATO document or allies in national capacity. But I I would actually put sort of separate the question of how what is said in the communique about Ukraine's future membership and prospects for that and and the question of map and so on and uh on the one hand and on the other hand this um security uh cooperation long-term commitments uh related to that so which would include you know training weapons provision intelligence sharing and so on um i think those are you know essentially going to be uh potentially even just you know in different national configurations, but there there are two issues that we can think about in, in discrete terms.
4: Yeah, I would just I know Jeff you want to break for questions, but I would just also add the European Union plays an important role in this too. Uh they have set up training facilities in, in Poland for the Ukrainians. Uh and then the a lot of the infrastructure for this is there. The US has established this training command at uh at Wiesbaden. Uh, and um, there's, of course, the ongoing uh, group that uh, that uh, Secretary Austin chairs on the security assistance that will be, I'm sure, reinforced and and under and uh, played up as uh, the so-called Ramstein group, uh, the Ukraine security assistance group that will be uh, will be, you know, perhaps given some kind of formal status. So all all of that provides Ukraine with additional assurances about Western commitment in the long term, which is really, you know, one of the things that is is worrisome right now for them.
3: And and I would add that while it's not a NATO-focused effort, the, you know, questions regarding Ukraine reconstruction, there was a big conference a couple of weeks ago, Uh, a major new RAND report has come out, and there will be a public event on July 17th uh, on uh, Ukraine reconstruction. Uh, You know, those are not, those issues are are very entangled in it, so it's not a NATO-led responsibility, but I would be surprised if that wasn't, you know, part of some of the discussion uh, you know, in and around the summit because you can't have uh, reconstruction without some sense of security. Uh,
1: one thing I wanted to ask is we, we, we talked about a lot of things that NATO might do. We've talked about uh, uh, brigades that may be moved uh, closer to uh, front lines. How is NATO and how are the member countries going to pay for all of this?
4: Well, that is, uh, that is one of the things that is on the top of the agenda. The uh, so-called defense investment commitment that uh, was made uh, several years ago to provi- uh, that each nation would be moving towards providing 2% of its gross domestic product towards national uh, defense. Uh, that expires this year. It needs to be renewed. There's some uh, debate over whether or not it should be raised. Uh, some have been pushing that it should be higher than 2% number of allies very only about six or seven have actually met that commitment so far a number are, are made it clear the Canadians that they they, they won't be meeting even the two percent commitment but that will be one one uh, reflection of commitment at the same time Jeff as you mentioned um, the Allies committed at the Madrid summit last June to to um, uh, bring their troop strength in the so-called enhanced forward presence uh, battle groups uh, in the East European countries up to full brigade level. Uh, a number have been moving to do that. The Germans just made a dramatic announcement uh, just this last week that they would move uh, in that direction, having been reluctant. Several of the other allies are, are undertaking exercises to show that they could, including the United States and the UK, that they could beef up their presence to that level in an emergency. Um the other thing is the uh, that is sometimes forgotten is that the uh, NATO allies also agreed to um, what's called a new force model, which would be a much larger uh, capacity to generate forces in the event of a conflict uh, to have upwards of a hundred thousand that allies would make a commitment um, in some form either at this summit or in in the wake of the summit to have uh, upwards of a hundred thousand forces available in a short period of 10 to 10 or 15 days and even larger forces available over time. And that, that will be one of the other uh, matters that uh, has been presented by the NATO military authorities, including um, the Supreme Allied commander, General Cavoli uh, for the allies to endorse that uh, at the head of state and government level.
3: I could just flesh that out a little bit. It's really worth it. I mean, the, before this, uh, before Putin, Invasion of Ukraine, you know NATO's defense and deterrence concept, and Steve and others can add a lot more to this. You know, rested on you know deterrence by retaliation uh, t- to a great degree. Russia would invade, and eventually, NATO would bring to bear sufficient forces to uh, mount uh, co- collective self-defense and expel Russian forces. You know, we've now seen the enormous human and infrastructure damage that uh, Putin's invasion has. Wrought uh, on Ukraine. And NATO doesn't mind any part of that, uh, especially the Baltics, where there's not a lot of strategic depth. So the emphasis now is on deterrence by denial, denying Russia's objectives if they sought to uh, invade uh, and or attack uh, NATO members, such as the Baltic states. So there's an emphasis on much more rapid, um, you know, protective uh, defense capabilities. And that's really an enormous change in NATO's overall approach. So this, do you think what
1: uh, Russia and China Barry? Do you think what, what Russia and, and China and anyone else may see in 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 those abilities to rapidly engage, like you just described, are they seeing things now that would impress them?
3: Uh, I think it's a mixed bag, and we could talk for a, a half hour on this. <laughs> you know, on one hand, uh, surprising, I'm sure, to Putin, the unity. Not just transatlantic, but transpacific. The unity of the uh, coalition supporting Ukraine. Uh, how Europe has gotten through the winter, where everybody said it would would not do so. The sanctions, you know, everything surprising unity. But I do think, you know, there's probably other messages. Okay, no one came to Ukraine's defense despite uh, legal commitments, uh, not in a treaty, but in the Budapest Memorandum and other documents. All they did was supply weapons. So, you know, in Taiwan, the polling in Taiwan, uh, there was a drop in um, when asked the question, you know, will the, do you think it's likely the U.S. will come to the uh, to contribute to Taiwan's self-defense? There was a drop in that, uh, in, in the public perception of that. So I think it's a mixed bag, and others I'm sure will have used. Yeah. And
2: I think what will be useful, too, during the summit to discuss is I think a lot of these points touch back to unity and just making sure that whatever those commitments are whatever we decide on that everyone follows through i know that's easier said said than done but i think signaling unity is really i mean it's at the core of what the alliance is uh and we can't signal that unity very clearly if we have you know varying commitments or we have vocalized commitments and we can't follow through with them so i think whatever we end up deciding and whatever those conclusions are i think it has to be realistic for everyone in the alliance and something that we can truly follow through on because i think we've seen now with ukraine more than ever it really matters for us to make sure that we can stand together in the face of uh, in the face of conflict one of
5: the the tricky things of it i think is that a lot of what had decayed in NATO, yes, it's force structure. I mean, we've all seen the numbers on how small some of the ground forces of of NATO nations have gotten. But a lot of what decayed since 1989 was really the the infrastructure of war fighting that lies sort of below the the surface, uh sort of the bottom of the, the uh iceberg. So um, you know, logist- logistical capabilities, um, a command structure. Uh, that has the ability to set requirements and hold individual nations accountable, um, war plans that are that are broadly agreed and consistently exercised, um, the individual nations having very particular roles uh, that they understand and regularly exercise to fulfill, all these aspects of being an effective combined arms warfighting alliance, which uh, NATO had worked so hard for decades to uh, to get to, a point of uh uh, effectiveness and then you know sort of went by the wayside and a lot of that is what is being rebuilt um and it's critically important uh how much anyone other than russian military planners really appreciate that is hard to say when so much of the discussion is about two percent is about you know um is uh are these countries even going to have a second or third operational heavy brigade kind of just counting the numbers um But I think ultimately to me, one of the bigger changes is even five years ago, we talked about the question of whether NATO would, um, choose to fight for the Baltics. Um, it was an active discussion looking at Baltic scenarios of partly for the issues that Barry was talking about. If you don't have the denial capability, if Russia grabs part of the Baltics, would NATO just sort of throw its hands up, um, and say, there's not much we can do about that. Uh, Personally, I think that debate is now completely overtaken by events, um, and not only because of the potential reinforcement of the East European posture of NATO. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a a political and strategic environment in which I think it would be inconceivable. I mean, all these statements from NATO leaders about not one inch of actual NATO territory will they surrender. So I think that um, both the underlying infrastructure of the alliance's ability to fight Major war, and um, the political commitment to lean forward and and respond immediately and decisively to any Russian aggression against the alliance. I think those are um, significant changes uh, that are underway and still have to play out to a degree, but. Now, China, I think, is a whole different thing. How China perceives what's going on in Europe with regard to Ukraine in relation to Taiwan or other things, there's a lot of uncertainties. And the causal chains there can be very uh, uh, indirect. So I wouldn't make any assumptions about whether China reads or doesn't read credibility into those things. But from the standpoint of European security, I think both of those changes really do address a couple of the major shortcomings of Western deterrent posture over the last several years.
1: Do you? Do any of you think that there could be Russian or even Ukrainian provocations at this summit? Cyber, something more than cyber, just tr.
5: Sam, I mean, we were talking about this earlier that the potential for Russian misbehavior around this summit to achieve some purpose. Do you see any? any thought of that or it would seem very counterproductive
0: well i mean uh by that metric um <laughs> it's hard to judge uh, russian foreign policy behavior by that metric given how how kind of productive a lot of the things they've been up to for the last, i don't know 30 years have been but um uh you know i i it, there's a sort of particularly what's going on in ukraine um uh has a sort of rhythm to it that i doubt would be um dramatically shifted to make a point during the summit but uh you know i'm i guess i'd be looking to m- more what happens in the aftermath depending on how uh russia views whatever uh commitments are made um during the summit
2: yeah i mean we could see an uptick in activity right like maybe some disinformation activity some cyber attacks and Something on the hybrid side, but probably not anything too dramatic during the, those couple days.
4: I, I would offer perspective on the uh, sort of a different vantage point on that, and that is that the recent turmoil in Russia with regard to the Wagner group escapades um, and uh, the growing forest in uh, among. Previously, uh, more centrist uh, think tankers in Russia for uh, an upping of the war in Ukraine. I think that'll help to bolster allied solidarity uh, over these defense commitments that uh, that we discussed earlier in this in this uh, conversation. Um, I, I think that all allies are are really gravely concerned about the. Uh, I think this if if Russia is trying to uh, you know. D- if Russia is trying to, uh, to cause the alliance to come uh, a bit unhinged, I think it's actually probably going to have the opposite effect, that, that allies are going to realize that the prospects of a wider war in Europe is a reality and that Europe needs to step up and, uh, and make good on some of these commitments uh, to defense spending and also to uh, force deployments.
1: You know, I think that will be a good segue to uh, beginning to wrap up this call. And uh, first point, let me just remind that if anyone would else would like to put a question in, uh, this will be a good time. because We're going to try to wrap in the next five minutes. But my suggestion for uh, a thought to ponder uh, at the end of this call is about beyond the war and how it may affect broader strategic ambitions. Uh, And and the extent to which maybe those broader strategic ambitions might be touched on at the summit. Uh, Barry, maybe I could call on you to uh, provide some thoughts.
3: Yeah, I think I would start on February 4th, 2022, when Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, signed a strategic partnership without limits. I'm I'm pretty certain that Xi Jinping regrets that now. Um, But uh, they're stuck with each other uh, in various ways. They're allies, I mean, uh, you know, in, in every sense but uh, the name of an alliance. Um, when Xi Jinping went to Moscow after a state dinner, he told Putin uh, as he was getting in the car, if we work together, we have an opportunity to shape the, the globe over the next 100 years. We're not thinking that way, you know, so our, our adversaries, whom I, I, I do consider sort of um, uh, allies, and should be treated more that way uh, in our bureaucratic structures and in other ways our allies are thinking big you know we're thinking about you know membership action plan or encourage ukraine to take crimea or not take crimea you know but because of the unprecedented western unity across asia europe and north america in response to putin's invasion i think this is an opportunity to cement some of those structures to be as creative as those uh, who created new structures and global institutions after World War II that helped to uh, ensure one of the greatest periods of prosperity, if not the greatest, in human history? Hundreds of millions of people were lifted out of poverty, uh, where there was the absence of uh, large scale war in Europe until now, uh, for the most part. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity, and I don't see that, ambi- that level of ambition. And I worry that if we continue to play small ball, uh, about the the outcome of the war and its aftermath, and that's what we'll get. We'll get we'll get a lot of tactical victories, but we won't uh, be able to strategically reset the global architecture for a very new world that we're in. The geopolitics of twenty twenty three are very different than even twenty eighteen. So I think we we have to kind of get our strategic act together, in addition to the operational. Yeah,
2: and kind of in line with getting our strategic act together, I think. It also comes down to understanding each other's threat assessments, because when you look at the Eastern European countries and the post-Soviet states, the way that they perceive the Russia threat is very different than how Italy, for example, perceives the Russia threat. Uh, and so when we're talking about aligning strategically, there's, there are a lot of nuances that go that go into that conversation of understanding where each NATO ally is coming from with whether it be its spent defense spending or its requests for nato enforcement or just an understanding of how does each ally perceive the threat and how do we align and how do we strategically align in a way that is is beneficial to all the all the allies
5: I'd very much agree just quickly with what Barry said, and and in particular, and to his last point about change geopolitical realities, one of the things this war has made clear is that there's a large group of countries in the world that, um, for a variety of reasons, are not really um, persuaded by the narrative of the United States and the West on the war and on the U.S.-Russia-U.S.-China relationships. Um, And the united states if the united states stays in as he put it a small ball mentality and also a reactive mentality and basically our message is we want to keep china and russia from doing hostile things they're trying to do that's something we have to do but you know increasingly i think it's apparent that we need a a bigger vision a broader um uh set of uh, ideas and goals that we can take to the global south non-aligned countries uh, whatever one calls this group of uh, increasingly important independent actors um, that kind of provides a, a sense that we are the ones driving history. China and Russia are not the ones driving history. And that's, I think, sort of lacking right now. Uh, not that the NATO summit can necessarily do that. I think one piece of that you're going to see is depending on the statements on China, you know, the the NATO um Strategic uh, concept of twenty twenty two made some fairly strong statements. Uh, you've got U.S. Uh, Asia Pacific allies that have uh, relationships with NATO that are um, that are growing. Uh, Japan and South Korea, in particular, um, to what extent you have you know a uh, formal statements of that. Um, there's been discussion of a possible NATO office in Japan. So as you begin to get a sense that um, U.S. allies, but broadly, um, advanced democracies are more tightly linked across these two regions. It's never going to be absolute. It's not going to be a NATO Article 5 extended to these other countries, but you're going to have political signaling um, that is important in the sense of the alignment of uh, the dominant proportion of economic and military power in the world that there are certain things that we would collectively respond to. So That can be one piece of this larger message. But I think, you know, U.S.-NATO strategy has to be part of a larger vision, which needs some more definition right now.
1: Okay, I think we are going to wrap it there. Uh, Very keen insights. I would like to thank Katrina, Steve, Mike, Sam, Barry. If anyone on the call would like to follow up, feel free to send a message directly to one of our experts, would to send it to us at media at RAND.org. Thanks, everyone, and uh, have a great day.
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.RAND.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.